Today on episode number 366 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Jeremy Kaplan tells us how to create a digital teaching toolkit. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. I'm so excited to have today's guest joining me. His name is Jeremy Kaplan. He's the Director of Teaching and Learning at Cooney's Newmark Journalism School. He's a reader, learner, and questioner, journalist and educator, teacher and writer, dad of two girls, violinist and chamber music lover. He teaches graduate courses, leads workshops, and helps journalists develop new ventures. Jeremy, today's guest, was introduced to me through Jeff Decker at AQ, the Association of College and University Educators, and they were part of knowing each other through an educational experience, as you'll hear about, but I want to just share my gratitude with AQ for sending me guests and for our partnership for all these years. AQ's courses and community site feature many of teaching and learning's top experts, faculty developers, and practitioners to show evidence evidence-based teaching practices. And for all these years, AQ has connected me with great guests for the show, and I'm thankful for the introduction to today's guest. Jeremy, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Hello, great to be here. I'm glad that we get this opportunity to have a second conversation today. That, or Actually, this might even be a third, but the first time you're coming on the show, and I'm excited for us to get an opportunity to learn from you today. You're going to be sharing with us how to craft a custom toolkit that has different kinds of digital teaching tools. Before you do that, would you talk about four ways that you group these tools together in terms of thinking about the affordances of them, and how we might go about using types of digital teaching tools. Sure, absolutely. Um, we, we often want to show things to our students, and that might be slides, it might be information. So show is the first part. We definitely want to ask things of our students. We want to engage with them and interact with them, learn from them. And so asking is the second key part of a toolkit. And, and gathering is another key element. So um, not just asking questions, but gathering actual materials with students. And then finally, co-creating. So we want to co-create as a collective group, new information, new ideas, new projects. And so those are the four key elements, showing, asking, gathering, and co-creating. For each of these categories, we're going to talk a little bit about what they're good at doing for us, and maybe some either limitations of the tools or approach or just limitations that you find many of us have as we're attempting to make use of them and really be able to leverage those. So when we talk about show, when we think about using digital tools for presenting, what do you think of as some of the affordances of the tools in this space? Well, one nice thing is that we can convey things in multiple ways. So students are hearing us either live in person or over a Zoom session. 
they're also potentially um, seeing our facial expressions. But but when we use slides, we can add other, other elements. We can add GIFs, we can add uh, visuals, we can add large text, we can add charts or graphics. So for different kinds of learners or to highlight different aspects of what we're teaching, it's really great to be able to show things visually in a way that connects with the teaching message and the learning outcomes for that session. And when you think about the challenges that many of us have when we attempt to use tools that fall under the show category, we're trying to present in this visual way that you describe, what are a couple of the challenges that we tend to run into? So we've all probably been at some point in our careers in some sort of PowerPoint draining session where there's tons of bullet points, things are hard to see, or just lots of text on screen that's complicated and confusing or unrelated to the core message. And we want to avoid that. We want to present students with clear, simple information, ideas, concepts, frameworks, and visuals. And so we want to find tools that allow us to do that simply and to not have to devote many, many hours to preparation on that, just on the visual side, because as teachers, we have so much other work to be, to be doing. So we want to make use of tools that are both easy to use for us and also render really, really nicely and enjoyably for our learners. What has been your experience with regard to the either perceived or real need to have my notes with me. I, I find there's just this constant wrestle between, wait, I need a lot of stuff on my my slides. I need those bullet points. If I don't have those bullet points, I might forget something. Or if I don't have those, I'm going to lose my place or I won't remember things. What, what's been your experience with that? Do you categorize that as a real need? And then therefore, how do you resolve it? Or do you, do you categorize that as a perceived need? And I realize... Anytime you give someone dichotomous choices, there's probably 40 other options that you might think about in terms of this whole domain. Yeah, I think there are packers and then there are spacers. The oh, packers yeah. like to pack a lot into <laughs> slides and, and spacers like to put, you know, one core message and a big visual. And I think people have different personality styles and different leanings and different needs. By the way, I think that approach also applies to how we structure our lessons, our lesson plans. Some people pack in a hundred different points in a lesson and try to move really quickly through a lot of stuff to be exciting and inspiring. And other people will space things out. And there are just three core messages for today. And both of those have value at different times. And both of you know them are, are, are kind of inclinations that different teachers have. So I think it's important to identify what your, you know, what works for you, what, what's, what's your jam, what, what flows for you as a teacher, and then to secondarily make sure that that's in accordance with what will resonate with students. And in general, I think the spacing approach for visuals on a slide tends to be a little bit more manageable um, for students because it doesn't ask them to read a lot on the screen at the same time. And it allows you to focus on one point at a time, which is one of the nice things about slides is it allows you to move sequentially through ideas or concepts or information and to take as much time as you need to on, on a given point. So I, I tend to prefer not to, to use the slide as um, my own notes or, or to kind of remind me um, because I want it to be really the visual um, that comes across to students that we're all focusing on. And then I can use other supporting elements to, to help me remember whether it's a post-it or a note um, by my desk or whether it's a kind of slide notes that's within the, the tool that I'm using. Yeah, I, I, what I'm hearing so much from what you said is just thinking about the purpose of it. So the purpose 
of this category of tools is to show things to learners, not to yourself. So if, if what you need to do is show something to yourself, there's other ways, like you mentioned, the notes space that's in all of the presentation tools I'm familiar with, or having something even printed out. I'll often print out a slide deck with nine slides on a page. And then that way, if anything were to happen technologically, I have a backup plan. And then I also find I'm better with transitions. I see that next slide that's coming, which again, many of the presentation tools will provide that for you in some type of a presenter view. But I find I'm better if I'm moving around the room, I'm not locked to my laptop, and then I can be looking at what's that, what's my next transition. And sometimes I'll even build in blank slides that for me are my little reminder of, okay, this is your transition into, and just mixing things up that way can be really helpful. So, all right. So what is a show tool that you want to share with us that we might consider building into our toolbox? Sure. So uh, the first one I'll mention, um, and I wrote about this on my Wonder Tools newsletter, it's called pitch.com. And for now, it's completely free for anyone um, to use, including teachers. And it just makes slides look beautiful. So if you're familiar with Google Slides, it's web-based in the same way. But unlike Google Slides, which has a more PowerPoint-like interface and a little bit more traditional bullet point style design, pitch.com is made to really be elegant, enjoyable to look at, easy to work with from the editing perspective and flexible. So you can use it to put a couple of images on the screen at a time, to put a couple of bullet points if you really want to. But whatever you put, the, the templates that pitch.com provides you with makes sure that it's going to look really professional, really clean, really polished, really engaging for students. And it allows you to collaborate with colleagues if you do that, if you, if you enjoy doing that. Um, it allows you to present in you know a variety of different ways. If you're presenting online or in a person in person, it, it works well for all of those kind of teaching scenarios. So I really I really am enjoying that as a as a pretty new presentation tool. I have some others um, that are good for other circumstances. So if you are someone who teaches science or math or other technical subjects, engineering, and you use a lot of numbers or graphics or charts in your presentations, there's a, a wonderful tool called Beautiful.ai. And it has an amazing array of templates that are pre-made that are really elegant for any kind of data, any kind of visual, any kind of chart or graphic that you might use. And you can simply select one and replace it and you know, replace the data, update it with your appropriate information. And what one thing that's really amazing and unique about that tool is it'll it'll adapt to the number or size of information you have. So if you have two, two bullet points, the web the, the web page will essentially reflow to show those elegantly. If you have on one particular slide, a couple more points to make, it'll resize the font, it'll reflow the text in a way that naturally just works. Because a lot of people, when they end up editing slides, they end up spending a lot of time kind of moving things around, changing font size. And that's actually where a lot of the time gets spent on creating presentations. Um, for some people, it's, it's on those minutia. So beautiful.ai kind of takes that work out of your, <laughs> your um, time spend and makes it a lot more efficient. One other one I'll mention, uh, which is also free at the moment, it's called Projector. And this is also a new one this past year, and it's a little bit hipper and cooler. So if you're someone who <laughs> likes that kind of hip avant-garde style or kind of fresh graphics, and you like to embed a lot of GIFs or even videos into your slides, images, um, stickers, Projector is an easy way to do that. And you don't have to hunt around the web for your images and videos and, and GIFs, it's all included in the projector interface. So you can sort of just drag and drop things into your slides. 
And again, like pitch.com, it has beautiful templates. So you don't have to redesign something from scratch. You basically just pick a template that resonates with you, replace the text, add a couple of images, and you're good to go. And students really respond to the strong visuals I find. It feels fresh, it's easy to create, it's fast, and it makes a strong impression when you're teaching, which allows you to focus on the core message, which is what you're trying to, to focus on the teaching and, and learning topics. When we talked about show, we talked about presenting, we talked about some of the things that lets us do and also some of the hindrances. One hindrance is we didn't mention is that that's often where some of us stop. So we've got three more categories of tools to look at that can really help make learning a lot more engaging. What can you tell us about ask? Well, one of the most important things that teachers can do, in my view, is to start with the bang, start with engagement. We don't want to start just by talking at students for a lengthy period of time because that's the easiest way to get them disengaged, as many of us know. So we want to ask something and we want to ask quickly, easily, and right from the start of a session in many cases, and often at the end of the session, as well as we're concluding and synthesizing. And sometimes we also want to use ask as a quick intermediary step in the middle of a, of a lesson to re-engage people and also to see where people are at in terms of how they're feeling about a topic, what their opinion is, what their view, what their experience is, what their personal experience is, how it connects to their lives, all of these kinds of things, we can ask them to draw out students and, and really re-engage them, engage them and then re-engage them because we want to continually cultivate their attention as James Ling talks about. Um, we want to recultivate their attention throughout. So we can use tools like Slido, which is one I love. It's a simple polling tool and you can use this in a live teaching situation in person or in a remote situation in place of the typical Zoom polls, which are only multiple choice. And what Slido allows you to do is create a word cloud poll, for example. So I often will ask students, how are you feeling today? What's one word that describes how you're feeling at the moment? And that's a nice way to give them a chance to check in with themselves and to check in with each other. And we get a quick word cloud that shows that, hey, a lot of people are feeling some anxiety today, or a lot of people are feeling excited about this new topic or a lot of people are curious. And so that's a nice uh, starter, I find. And other times we'll ask an open text question. You know, what's your experience with this topic that we're talking about? Or, or what's the biggest question that's on your mind? Or what are you curious about today? Or what's one thing you hope to learn? Any kind of open-ended question works well with Slido. And one of the advantages of these kinds of tools, as opposed to using just the Zoom chat or whatever built-in chat that some people may use, is that this can be anonymous. So students may not feel comfortable you know, saying out loud that they have a certain feeling or that they have a certain opinion. But with these polling tools, you can allow them that, that freedom of anonymity. And you can still moderate if you're concerned about inappropriate things. You can still do some moderation if you need to, but I haven't found that to be a, a big concern. So Slido is a great tool for that. It even has ranking polls. So if you want to ask students, which of these three issues do you think is the most important cause of this issue that, that happened or which is most important to you, or you can have them rank things. Um, and you can even use it for a game. So it has a Kahoot-like function, which is sort of a, a quiz, you know, a kind of a game, game that uh, they can win. Um, so you can use Slido in, in multiple different ways. One of the things I love about it is that you can just improvise as you go if you need to. You can plan it in advance. But I often will use um, the Chrome browser and just type in poll.new, P-O-L-L.new, and it will launch and open up a Slido poll immediately. And I can quickly type in the question if I have something that comes up in the class that I want to ask about. And then I can show the results um, by sharing screen, which allows everyone to see what the results are in a nice, beautifully presented way. 
And they also, once they've answered the question, can see the results on their own screen. So it's really a nice way to get everyone on the same page, get people engaged in the topic, get them thinking about the topic in advance of discussing it or after discussing it, to warm up the room at the beginning of a session, and then to synthesize things at the end of a session. When we think about the downsides or some of the friction points of ask tools, or really, actually, I think this probably refers to all of the rest of the categories of tools, is that now you are engaging people. So there there are increasingly tools that will integrate and be baked into synchronous web tools like Zoom or like Teams, but we're not really there yet. Most of these are still I don't know what you what word you're used to hearing for this, Jeremy, but I always think of like a second window, you know, as mm-hmm. it, and so mm-hmm. that can sometimes be, hey, pick up your cell phone if you've got a second device there or open up a new browser. I found that the friction went down once the whole world seemed like they started hopping on the teams and zooms of this world, WebEx, what have you, but it's still present. So how do you advise us? the smoothest, most seamless way to sort of get around these friction points anytime you introduce a new second screen or second device? What's your guidance to us? Yeah, I think that's a really important point. You want to make it as easy as possible for students and students have different levels, just like we all do um, with their tech familiarity. So a few thoughts. First, the nice thing about it, as you said, when you're on Zoom or on Meet or, or any other platform teams, you can just paste a link into the chat. Right, So that's very simple that students just click the link and then the poll question pops up. So there's no complex things to install, nothing to download, nothing to register for. They just literally click the link. So I find that that's very easy in a remote setting. Uh, Second thing is that I do think it's helpful the first time you use something to just give a quick walkthrough. There's three steps to this. Click the link, fill in your answer, and then hit submit. So even though that may seem obvious, you know, for a student, if they're encountering it for the first time, um, it might be helpful. They may not realize they have to click submit, for example. So I I do just walk them through very, very quickly what that step is. The third point I make is that, you know, in many cases, we're working with students on an ongoing basis. So there might be a little bit of, you know, the first time you use something, say, hey, this is Slido, this is a poll tool. You just click the link and answer the question then hit submit, and then we can see the shared results. And once you've done it the first time, the second time I find students are just like, oh yeah, of course, we've done that. It's very familiar and it's very comfortable. So so it might be a little investment up front. But as long as you explain how it works, and, and I also like to explain why we're doing it. And this is something I think we sometimes lose sight of, that we, we teach and we do all these things or we use certain tools. And sometimes it's not clear to students, well, why, why are you doing that? Why aren't you just using a Zoom poll? Or why, why are we doing polling at all? So I like to say to them, look, I want to hear what you have to say. I'm curious your thoughts about this. And, and, I, and I think this might help us set up the next topic we're going to talk about. And I, I even give them the meta conversation about learning and pedagogy and, and what we've learned about the, learning, the science of learning. So, so I'll tell them, if you predict what you think the most you know, likely cause is, you're actually going to be more receptive and more able to learn what the actual cause is than if we hadn't even discussed it beforehand. Or, or if you synthesize this information now and put it in your own words at the end of a session, research shows your recall is going to be better. So you're going to have an easier time down the road and, and you're going to be able to, to use this information more comfortably. So I'll, I'll try to give them a little bit of that explanation of how the tool works and why we're doing this, and why this is a good approach um, that we've chosen. And then I find they're, they're like, oh, okay, that makes sense. And they're more likely to be on board with it. One last point in this area, you know, sometimes the tool isn't really the most important thing in, in, in many cases. And so, you know, if you're in person and you, and you want to use a, a, an index card to do an ask, 
or you want to use a, you know, you want to show a big piece of paper or a big sign or a big post-it on the wall instead of using a digital tech tool to show something. Like, I think all of those are great. I think it's just a question of, you know, in what context are we in and, and what's the simplest way to achieve our objective and the most enjoyable one. And so, you know, if it's, if it's a matter of handing out an index card or, or, or even using the chat, you know, if somebody doesn't want to use a, a digital polling tool, they just want to use the chat, you know, the, you can do that as well. Because I think the, the really important thing is that we're engaging people and we're not talking at them and we're really working with them and interacting. So, so whatever is the easiest way is often the best way. But I do think that sometimes an investment in trying a new tool can really open up some nice advantages um, like the ones we're talking about today. What I also am hearing in what you shared is that sometimes the added complexity is going to be worth it in the long run. So we'll get through that friction together such that it really does just become completely normal. We've all collectively built a new set of skills in and a new set of norms. So I, I like your idea of definitely saying the whys. Why are we doing this? We're also going to be using this tool or a series of tools that all work in similar ways. Because you just talked about those steps, Jeremy. Those steps are mm -hmm. the same for practically any tool I can th think of in terms of that second screen or the second device. I'm going to be putting a link in the show notes to a video from Teddy Svornos at Harvard. And he makes a really short but very detailed video for his students of how he recommends that they set up their Zoom because there's some default settings in there that he wants them to be familiar with and even some different views that you can create. And he'll kind of talk about there's going to be really two main ways I'm going to teach. Sometimes you'll just hear me talking and then sometimes I'll be working with the whiteboard. And here's what I suggest. And it's it's so concise. I'm, I'm making it longer than I even need to. Uh, so concise, but a really good way of laying down that foundation. All right. What can you tell us about the kinds of ways that having tools that help us gather can benefit us? So some of these tools will be useful in live sessions. Some of them are useful in between classes as well. And so, and some of them you can use in either. So some examples of tools that I use for gathering include um, Google Photos, which is a really simple one. And basically allows you to create a shared album that all students can add to. They can add images or videos. And it's very familiar to people because they use you know, Google tools often and they have it on their phone and or their desktop. And it works well, it's fast, um, it has no storage limit, it's completely free to use. You can give students a link to that shared Google Photos album once you've made it um, publicly editable or editable by the group as you choose, they can then add their materials to it. And then the second step is they can then comment on each other's contributions. So um, depending on what kind of class you're doing, the images that you're using might be very different, but um, you can always have this kind of interaction where people are commenting on each other's images and creating a collaborative album, really, by gathering all this information. Another one that I find useful is sendtodropbox.com. So this is a tool and there are others like it where you can basically have people send something into a shared Dropbox. And then you can either have only access to it yourself if you're just gathering things from students and then showing them selections, or you can make the access shared. One other additional way to do this is to do this through multimedia, uh, like through audio. So you can use something like Google Voice, which allows anyone to create a free, it's basically a digital phone number, but it's the same as a regular phone number in the sense that anyone can dial it and then leave a voice message. And you can have your students record any kind of message on that and gather their input on something. And then you can embed those into a web page or into a learning management system. And it's a nice way to kind of gather people's different voices on that subject, much like you might use VoiceThread or even something like Flipgrid. 
And both of those can be used in this way too, to gather kind of student voices. One last one that I'll mention is called SpeakPipe. And this is if you have a web page or an LMS where you want to have students record an audio message and kind of gather their ideas, typically between a session, between sessions, um, gather their input or thoughts, kind of like an audio discussion board almost, or a video discussion board in the case of Flipgrid, to, to again, gather different voices and, and have people contribute their own thoughts in their own words in their own way. What kinds of challenges do you see people having when they start to use gather tools? There are some people who are using, you know, unusual devices. My, my daughters are in Zoom school. They're five and eight at the moment. And they have classmates who are on every known device. And, you know, you could imagine. So some students are on a Chromebook, some are on an iPad, some are on a, an Android um, kind of tablet, and some are even on a Kindle tablet, for example. So that means that not everyone has the same interface when they're trying to, to share something, whether it's a file or a photo or a video. Fortunately, some of these, like Google Voice, just requires access to a phone number, right? So anyone can, who can call anything can call a Google Voice number and leave a voice message um, as part of this kind of activity. So some of them kind of get around that complexity a little bit. But for other ones, there might be a little bit of figuring out the time that, that's required at the beginning to figure out, for example, how to upload something to a shared Google Photos album if you haven't used that before. Some people prefer to use a public tool um, like Pinterest for this kind of thing, too. Um, Pinterest allows you to create public um, shared pages or editable pages that are editable by a group um, like your students. So that can be another alternative for that as well if it's easier for, for someone. I think so often about the friction of it. And one of the nice things that you've described here is that there's such little friction for many of them. But whenever we think about the lowered friction, that means lowered friction for anyone, not necessarily just our students. So I always want to caution people that you wouldn't want to put out on Twitter, for example, the link to your Google Photos album where anyone could, you know, put stuff up there if it wasn't, you know, protected in some kind of a way. So keeping those links that are really, really open and allow someone to contribute without having a login or being logged in, it's going to be important not to put those in public spaces. I don't know if you have any other warnings like that for us. Yeah, I think, I think, you know, a lot of times these can be, you can invite people individually, so you don't have to necessarily make the, the link totally public, um, depending on the particular tool mm -hmm. um, in, in that case. And yeah, I, I agree that in some cases we want to make sure not to make the link available in public spaces, um, just as you wouldn't put your, you know, private phone number on a public Craigslist page or something. We want to be, you know, careful about that as well. What can co-create tools allow us to do? This is where we can really make exciting things together as a group. And this can be in a live session in person or online, or it can be something we do collaboratively over the course of a week in between classes or over the course of a semester. And the tool that some people might be familiar with, which is a great starter for this, is Jamboard, Google Jamboard. It allows you to basically have a digital whiteboard that you share and people can add you know, simple things like um, uh, just post-its and little comments and little drawings. And then once you've kind of mastered that, or if, or if you want something more than that, there's a whole range of really nice tools that allow you to do a little bit more um, co-creation. Um, one of them that's commonly used um, by teachers is Padlet, which many people may be familiar with and allows you to create multiple different kind of vertical columns that allow people to organize and share and create information or uh, images in different categories. But some newer ones include Miro and Mural, these are a little bit fancier whiteboards that allow you to create really kind of intricate 
collective creations, whether it's a framework that you've given your class and asking them each to uh, fill in a certain section of it with images or diagrams or text or things that they find online. And you can use it in a very simple way. You know, a lot of people see it and get overwhelmed by a tool like Miro uh, or Mural. By the way, both of those have free educator plans to start out with. So a lot of people get overwhelmed because they are powerful professional tools, but actually they have wonderful onboarding um, exercises and examples and templates. So you can, as long as you can devote about 15 to 20 minutes to kind of getting yourself set up, you can actually get started really easily. And, and, and I would encourage people to start with something very simple for the students to do. So there's some very simple sort of icebreaker activities just so the students can get familiar with the tool set on those tools for the first time, because there are you know, a bunch of different tools to choose from. So the first glance can be like a little bit overwhelming for students. And so it's good to have a very simple exercise. And, and, and actually both, both Miro and Mural come with preset templates, for example, for icebreakers. So you can just pull up one of those and just kind of practice with the students for a few minutes to show them how they're going to co-create something on the board for, for something that you've planned. A brand new one that's just joined that's even easier, which I really love, is called FigJam. So if, if people are familiar with Figma, which is a super popular new kind of design tool, um, FigJam is a free open whiteboard, digital whiteboard that anyone can now use. And it, it's even simpler than Miro or Mural. And, and yet it's really powerful for, for creating things together and collaboratively thinking about a topic. And it's fun. You know, I think our teaching should really be fun. Our learning should be fun. It should be effective, should be engaging, of course, but it should also be fun. And so these tools really allow us to have a little fun, be a little playful. You know, occasionally you can add a sticker or a little funny GIF or graphic, and that enhances learning. It makes learning more effective and engaging, and it just enhances the experience. So that's part of the, the co-creation process as well. And what have you found that people might run into as far as challenges go when trying to use these co-create tools? I have had students. So I, I run a program called the Journalism Creators Program at the Newmark Graduate School of Journalism in, at CUNY in, in the City University of New York. And, and we do have some students who are coming in from various parts of the world for remote sessions and including places where there's really low bandwidth or there's uh, complicated connectivity issues. And we have occasionally had a couple issues with people trying to use something like Miro collaboratively, collectively at the same time. And in some cases, that low bandwidth makes it difficult to take advantage of, of all the features of that kind of a tool. So if you are dealing with low bandwidth situations or students who don't have access to a kind of relatively modern laptop, that kind of a tool might be a bit of a challenge for them. In which case, you know, you might try a simpler one like Google Jamboard or even go back to even simpler tools. You know, again, if, 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 if need be, have them use, you know, paper and be drawing something on paper and showing it, you know, in front of their camera or, or if, if you're a, if in a remote situation or just using paper and pen in a live classroom. You know, I think the important thing is people are creating together, they're building together, um, they're doing something engaging, interactive and fun. And so, you know, I've, I've had, I've resorted to using, you know, tin foil and toothpicks and, you know, clay and whatever, whatever the, the materials are, whether they're digital or not, you know, will depend on the, on the context. And so just judging by what your students can do and what works for them, you, you can really do as, as exciting and new a thing as, as you'd like, or, or, or return to something traditional and effective as well. 
One of the challenges that I have found in these spaces are actually two ends of a continuum. One challenge is people not understanding, students or learners not understanding that to leave the other stuff there. So sometimes you'll have people that will delete everything that's there because they, they're not accustomed mm-hmm. to that multiple people will be working on this. And it's one of those things I have at least once forgot to explain like no you're not starting with a blank sheet of paper it's not just your sheet of paper but it's something that multiple people will be contributing to so that's been one end of that that spectrum and then on the other end is a real hesitancy to then change or modify anything so when you're doing collaborative writing part of that is understanding what your roles are going to be if you're an editor we kind of need to get to some space where we trust each other enough to let that person edit versus that, oh, no, I have to leave their original exactly like it looked when I came across it and then somehow try to morph around it. So I found over an overarching guidance that helps us to set norms and also to identify roles and establish what those roles are going to be. So it's sometimes I, I think it's it's. When you do a lot of collaborative work, you're just so used to that. You just hop right on and off you go and not recognizing that, you know, we're taking our identities into these spaces and to be sensitive about what that means if you change somebody's work without talking about it in advance. You know, that doesn't mean that you had a bad idea or a bad writer. These are some of the more collaborative people oriented skill sets that I find myself needing to think about in addition to using the tool for whatever it is we're trying to accomplish on the discipline specific learning, if that makes any sense. Have you ran into this as well? Yes, I think that's an important point. So I think the first step is walking people through the instructions, as you said, making it really clear. Here are three things to keep in mind. You know, it's okay to make a mistake. You can play around. It's it's, it's important to respect other people's work and, and to, to draw on your own space, et cetera. So setting up some instructions. The second thing I've found helpful is having a little experimental time. So, you know, in, in other contexts, we get a chance to try something a little bit before we might get a, an amused bouche at a restaurant or something to taste, to taste something or, or a sample at a Trader Joe's or something. And, and so I think giving people a little bit of a mess page, I call it a mess page or a scratch page where the first time we're using something, they can just kind of play around and try out the different tools and it's okay to be messy or make a mistake or, you know, even erase something because they'll realize how it works. And then when we're trying to really, you know, create something for the exercise or activity, we're, we're kind of past that scratch phase and we're ready to go. The third thing that I think is helpful in this regard is having separate spaces to some extent. So if you use Jamboard, for example, you can have each group or each student have a separate little area that's their own. And if you have Google Slides, I often have students co-create a Google Slide deck. So they're each working on a different slide. And I'll usually take a minute or two um, beforehand to just label the slides with their names or, or even just one through 20 or whatever number of students you have. And then they're each on their own slide, for example. And you can do this with pretty much any of these digital whiteboard tools where you kind of have, for example, with Mural or Miro, you can kind of copy and paste a set of, you know, an area essentially that is for designated for each student so that they're not working on top of each other digitally. They each have their own designated work area. And the same applies even if you're using a Google Doc. You know, Google Docs can be fine. They're simple collaborative tools and, and, um, and you can designate, you know, a space for, for each group or each student to work in. And then there's less risk of, you know, students typing on top of each other or, or, or deleting things. 
One thing I do encourage them to do though, is when we're doing these exercises is to take time. We usually set aside some time for students to look at each other's work because there is also a risk that students just do their own thing and they're not really noticing what else is going on. And so we want to take a, a time, just like, you know, elementary school students do a gallery walk. They walk around the room and see what everyone else put up around the walls. So we do a kind of digital gallery walk where we sort of say, look at what everyone else created. And then most of these tools have commenting functions. So you can add a, a drop a comment and say, oh, that was really interesting. I wonder what you meant by this. Or I really like that you mentioned that it connects to something that I was working on as well. And, and so you get some additional interaction in that next phase after the initial creation. I love doing that too and asking people to say, what do you notice the themes are or patterns or what one stood out as completely surprising or unique in some way? And, and being able to see those connections can be so powerful. And it's almost a new lens that we can put onto our learning that can be so powerful. Yeah, it's really, it's really fun. And it's something that can happen live in the session again, or it can be something you continue afterwards as part of the ongoing thread of the class. And even with a tool like Padlet, you know, it allows that kind of commenting. And so most of these tools really can work well to, and, and to continue the discussion after class. You know, the discussion after class doesn't have to be, or between classes, doesn't have to be on a quote-unquote discussion board. It can really be done in a kind of creative way through some of these collaborative tools. Before Jeremy and I get to the recommendations segment, I wanted to thank today's sponsor, and that is SaneBox. And SaneBox is one of those services that I've been subscribing to, and so has Dave, for so long that I almost forget how email works without it. What SaneBox does is it helps take all of the stuff that pops up with equal importance in our inbox and sorts it with a lot of really smart thinking, the algorithm that it uses to sort things into things that might be less important, puts them in other folders such as sane later or sane newsletters, lots of ways to get things out of our inbox that are likely to be less important. And if it ever gets that wrong, which I still scratch my head because it really doesn't with me, but if on occasion I want to take something and retrain SaneBox, all I have to do is, for example, I could drag an email from that Sane Later folder into my inbox and SaneBox just magically remembers, oh, next time she gets that same email, she wants it to show up in her inbox instead of in the Sane Later. And of course, vice versa works as well. So very easy to retrain it. I hardly ever have to do that. But if I ever do, it's a really easy process. It makes it so much easier for me to manage my email and to make sure that I'm not overloaded with a bunch of messages that all get treated the same when they really shouldn't be in terms of priority. If you head on over to sanebox.com slash T-I-H-E, as in teaching in higher ed, you can get a free trial and take advantage of a $25 credit toward a SaneBox subscription. Again, head on over to SaneBox.com slash T-I-H-E. And thanks once again to SaneBox for sponsoring today's episode. This is the point in the show where we each get to share our recommendations. And I have one that actually relates back to you. And that is I want to recommend that people go check out this Notion page that you have for an event that we both got to be a part of. 
And that is a link to journalism through the Learning Design Starter Toolkit. And so I'll put a link to that in the show notes, but it is the same four categories of tools and many of the same tools that you just mentioned. Um, And even though it's in a journalism context, I found it so helpful just in any context to want to do these four functions. And I just encourage people to go over and check that out as a way of extending the learning from today's episode. And I'm going to pass it over to you, Jeremy, for your recommendations. Sure. Yes. Yeah. So I have a few final um, sort of digital tools that we didn't mention. I'll just mention really quickly in passing, and then I'll give you my my kind of personal recommendation. Um, so a few, few tools that that are really, really fun and great, I think, for, for people to explore if you haven't. One is Goose Chase. This is for scavenger hunts. And you can use them with a class. You can use them for an orientation kind of a session. It's super fun. It's a digital scavenger hunt. Um, I love using it with students to get them to know each other and and to just have an onboarding kind of fun experience. And it's a blast. Another that I want to recommend highly, if people aren't aware of Pathrite, it's a wonderful new way to think about learning paths online, creating learning paths. We're all familiar, I'm sure, with learning management systems. The, the big famous ones like Canvas and Blackboard. But there's a whole other approach, which is to kind of focus on creating a path for learning, which Pathrite has created. It's a small startup from South Carolina. And not many people know about it, in my experience, in, in the big world of, of higher education. But I found it to be one of the most elegant ways to create learning paths for, for people in different kinds of courses. And so if people are looking for alternatives to the traditional LMS solutions, I, I highly encourage people to, to check it out. We've found it, we've used it for our programs and I, I find it to be really, really great. The other big recommendation I'll, I'll offer has nothing to do with any of these tools. I, I write about these tools all the time for, for Wonder Tools, um, which is my, my newsletter, wondertools.substack.com. But when I'm not thinking about tools or writing about tools, I love reading as I'm sure many people um, listening do as well. But sometimes I'm ready for something a little bit lighter or lighter on the eyes. So I've been super into graphic novels since the uh, pandemic began in particular. And I want to recommend a couple of really great ones. Um, Gareth Hines has really wonderful graphic novel versions of the Iliad and Odyssey and is terrific. Jerry Craft has a couple of really great graphic novels that are actually technically aimed at YA, young adult audiences, but I find them to be great. Um, One's called New Kid, and people might be familiar with Raina Tegmeyer, who's who's another author who writes in that vein, who uh, wrote a book called Smile, and and there are a series of those graphic novels. Um, And then there's just a great array of of classic classic novels that are in graphic novel form. So A Handmaid's Tale is one I read recently, Oliver Twist, Dorian, Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde, A Wrinkle in Time. All of these have really nice, relatively new graphic novel versions. So if you're looking to read, but want something that's nice on the eye, that's uh, my recommendation for, for today. And then if you're looking for something really a little bit higher brow in the graphic novel realm, there's a guy named Christophe Chabut, a French graphic novelist who did a beautiful version of Moby Dick which is just gorgeous and wonderful and has a few others, one called Park Bench, one called Alone, and then one based on the classic Jack London story, To Build a Fire, which is just fantastic. So he's a really wonderful graphic novelist that I I recommend people check out. 
Well, you definitely have not left us with uh, nothing to play with after today's episode, nothing to check out. I am excited about checking out so many of the tools that you mentioned in the main part of the episode and following that up with the things that you recommended. Jeremy, thank you for being a guest today on Teaching in Higher Ed. It's been a total pleasure, Bonnie. I love your podcast. You do great work. And I'm so excited to be in this community of, of educators who are working in this really, really exciting field. I'm so grateful to Jeremy Kaplan for joining me for today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I was energized by our conversation and I have all these things I want to check out and hope you do too. If you'd like to see the show notes for today's episode, it's probably already in your podcast player. You can probably swipe over depending on what app you're using. But if you want to access it more directly, head on over to teachinginhighered.com slash 366 as in episode 366. You can also subscribe to the weekly teaching and higher ed update. The show notes will show up in your inbox, along with some other goodies like other recommendations, some quotable words, and other things I think you'll enjoy. So head over to teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe if you'd like to subscribe to the teaching and higher ed update. I'll see you next time on teaching and higher ed.